I'd like to start out this morning by expressing my gratitude for you letting me stand before you in, in Josh's absence and your confidence in me to, to do so. We've only, my wife and I have only been here about a year and a half, but you've really taken us in and for that we're grateful. We've made some really lifetime friends here and we, we've really enjoyed getting to know everyone and be a part of this congregation, even despite a, a couple very busy schedules. Uh, we're super glad to have any visitors here with us this morning. We're glad that you chose to be with us. We're somewhat sorry that you're going to have to hear me instead of our regular preacher, Josh McKibben. He does a fantastic job, <clears throat> so hopefully you'll get to be back with us. You've probably already noticed the voice is not doing too well today. Um, Thursday evening, I started to get a little scratchy throat. Friday, it was pretty clear I had a sinus infection, and so I'm past the contagious stage, I think, but the you know, there's been a few times in my life where my voice has completely gone out, where there's zero there. And so because of that, I'm going to tell you in advance, <clears throat> I think every gospel sermon should include, uh, if you are a Christian and you have sin in your life, this is a great opportunity for you to, to come forward and have the congregation pray for you in repentance. Also, I think every sermon should revolve obviously around Jesus and the fact that he died for us. And Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and 38, he said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And so if there's anybody here today who has the need to do that, if in the event that I nod at Robbie because there's nothing else coming out of my voice, there's your invitation and we hope that you'll take advantage of that. Nevertheless, I will talk as, as long as I can <clears throat> within hopefully a short amount of time. But I'd like to speak to you this morning about disfellowship with God. As Josh said, that's kind of a dicey sermon title, but basically what we're talking about is being out of fellowship with God. Specifically, I want to talk to you about three examples of individuals in the Bible who at one point or another found themselves in a state of being out of fellowship with God. I'd like for us to examine these three situations and the consequences of that disfellowship, and then ultimately to conclude, I want us to learn how to remedy being out of fellowship with God. I'd also like for you to know that within a few weeks, Josh McKibben is going to cover the idea of fellowship with God, whereas today we're going to focus primarily on being out of fellowship with God. Nevertheless, we may actually have to steal a little bit of his thunder this morning by turning over to 1 John chapter 1, if you will. If you'll take your Bibles, 1 John, in the first chapter, and starting in verse 5, we're going to look at this idea of what exactly is fellowship with God. 1 John 1 and verse 5 says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here we have a very clear comparison of those who are in fellowship with God against those who are not. Uh, you see in verse 7, it's really clear that in order to have fellowship with God, we have to walk in the light. What does that mean to walk in the light? There's a sharp contrast here between light and dark. And verse 5 says that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Thereby, if we walk in the light, we have to walk in a state of the righteousness of God without sin. You say, but wait a second. Verse 8 says, 
if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Does this mean that we can't? That's a little bit confusing. But the answer is in verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, with a confession of wrongdoing, God forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us and through his Son from all unrighteousness, thereby allowing us to walk in the light as he is in the light. So basically, I say all this to say, walking in the light puts us in fellowship with God. Walking in darkness puts us in a state of disfellowship with God. So with that as our backdrop, I now want to look at our three examples. And our first one comes from the book of Jonah. If you'll turn over with me to Jonah, if you'll go to Matthew and turn back eight books, it's kind of a hard book to find, or it's right after Obadiah and the Minor Prophets of the Old Testament. If it helps even more if you're using one of the standard print Bibles, mine's on page 812 from a New King James Version. A story that I think we're all quite familiar with, and yet we're going to read parts of it here. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So here's Jonah making an attempt to flee from the presence of the Lord. This kind of reminds me of what our brother Gary Sandusky said to us in our gospel meeting last week where he said, the world is a fugitive trying to run from God. And so here we see Jonah making the conscious decision to try to flee from the presence of God. And perhaps we say, well, wasn't Jonah a prophet? Didn't he know that God would find him out and that he would know exactly? And to be honest, I don't have an answer to exactly what Jonah was thinking. But if you read the rest of the book and you go over on into chapter 4, I'm going to suggest to you that pride motivated Jonah to make the decision that he made. You see, Jonah was a natural-born Israelite, a Jew, one of God's chosen people, and he likely could not stand the thought of going and preaching to the heathen people. Um, Nineveh, he could not stand the thought of, of them actually maybe having salvation uh, from God, and so he let pride place himself in a position of disfellowship with God, and it makes me ask myself, how often do I let pride stand in the way of my fellowship with God? Again, Gary spoke to us last week uh, out of First Peter. First Peter 4, 8, 9 says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. This didn't say, above all things, accept your own pride or your ego. Sometimes we might let our egos even stand between our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so... Just as pride can easily cause us to knowingly walk in darkness, it's likely that that was a strong motivator for Jonah's disfellowship in this, in this passage. And we know that God was greatly uh, angered and he disapproved of Jonah's disobedience. In verse 4, we read, The Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. They were in a very bad state of affairs here. And as we read on, we see that Jonah at least acknowledged to the ship crew that he was at fault for their calamity. And despite their best efforts, as we read, the crew had to do a very difficult thing. They had to take Jonah and throw him into that raging sea. <clears throat> this shows clearly that Jonah's poor choice was the cause, uh, the cause of God's wrath because we see that the sea calmed right afterwards. And then 
again, going along with the story that we all know very well, God prepared for Jonah a great fish, and we know that he spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Very neat story. Perhaps we're kind of used to depictions like this from vacation Bible schools and Bible classes growing up, where we see Jonah, and he's looks pretty comfortable. I mean, I went camping on the weekend before last, and it looked a lot like this. Um, you know, he's got a fire. Sometimes you'll see depictions. He's even got a chair in there for some reason. Looks pretty comfortable. And yet, um, chances are good what Jonah's view looked at in this situation was probably a lot more like this. Josh said, hold up, you're missing a slide. And I said, no, leave it. <clears throat> it's dark. Because we're making this comparison of walking in the light versus walking in the dark, uh, Jonah's decision placed him in a state of physical and spiritual darkness here. God had chosen to punish Jonah, so it's not likely that that punishment would have involved a nice, cozy accommodation. In fact, if, as we go on into chapter 2 of Jonah, we see in verse 2, Jonah describes his situation in his prayer to God as a state of affliction. If you've ever cleaned fish, you know that uh, a lot of fish have nasty stuff in their guts, including other small fish. And so there stands a good chance that Jonah was not very comfortable, but we're going to read that his head was covered in seaweed, and he was probably surrounded by nasty fish remains that the fish had eaten. Um, Jonah goes on to use some strong imagery in this prayer, and we'll actually just read this prayer. Jonah 2 and verse 2, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, meaning the underworld or the place of the dead, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your billows and your waves passed over me. And then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet will I look again toward your holy temple. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings or the base of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever, yet you brought me up, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you, into your holy temple. Due to the physical circumstances of his situation, he says in verse 7 that his very soul fainted within him. It's very likely, and some people even believe that Jonah died, regardless of, of what actually happened. Uh, it's very likely that he was at the point of death right here. And Jonah's saying that he offered up his prayer even from the belly of Sheol, again, the place of the dead. He'd been cast out of the side of the Lord. And verse 5 says, The deep closed around him, and the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Jonah's depicting a complete and utter separation from God. Perhaps the worst part of being in a state of disfellowship with God is the separation from God. We know that if one allows themselves to leave this life in a state of disfellowship with God that they will spend an eternity in torment, which will be horrific beyond imagination. And perhaps one of the worst aspects would be the separation from God. Can you imagine never feeling God's love again? Can you, never, can you imagine never having the hope of seeing God ever again? And to remain in a state of disfellowship with God would certainly be an awful event. But the good news is that Jonah, recognizing his separation from God, besought the Lord from his mercy, and we know exactly what happened. God commanded the fish to spit Jonah out on the dry land. See, while Jonah's life was still in him, God afforded him the opportunity to restore his fellowship with him 
Just as any time we're out of fellowship with God and we're still alive, we have that same opportunity to restore that fellowship with him. Uh, Can you imagine the relief that Jonah felt in the situation being so close to death and yet being delivered (coughs) from that separation from God? And what a relief, again, that we can have any time we're able to have God pull away the nasty seaweed off from our head and and to, to eliminate that separation that we have from God. Now let's look at our second example found in Luke, the 15th chapter. Again, a story that we're all very familiar with. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, we're going to see Jesus giving a parable about the prodigal son. Now remember, a parable, of course, from Jesus is is always going to have a spiritual application that can be applied to us today. And in this parable, we see a father-son just as we are sons of God, who decides to break his fellowship with the Father. And let's quickly read a few verses here, starting in verse 11. Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal, or as the English Standard Version says, uh, with wasteful, living, uh, but when he had spent all, there arose severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will rise and go to my father. And we'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. In the time of Jesus, this request to go to your own father and request your inheritance would would have been considered very insulting. And yet, if you think about it, it would be pretty insulting today, too. My dad sits on the very back row. I can't imagine walking up to him and saying, Dad... Give me what's coming to me. You owe it to me. How insulting would he be? My dad's never hit me, but he'd probably kick it around in that situation. And yet the application is, imagine how insulting it is to our Father in heaven when we disgrace the death of his only begotten son by telling him, you know what, God, I'm going to do this on my own for a while. I think I've got this. So We see the son go, and he very quickly wastes his inheritance on riotous, or I'm sorry, the English standard says reckless living. Maybe it looks something like this. The point being, he was living it up. And this likely seemed really great at first, having a great time. But things quickly turned worse for the worse for the prodigal son. Hebrews 11.25 alludes to the fact that the pleasure of sin is only temporary. And then what? After the pleasure of sin wears off, we are left with its consequences. We can... Easily see the consequences that the prodigal son faced as we read through uh, this this parable. In verse 14, we see that he was poor. Just like we are spiritually poor anytime we're in a state of disfellowship with God. In verse 15, we see him forced to take a job that was considered to be shameful. In verse 16, we see him in a state of extreme hunger. And it's interesting, there's plenty of food for the pigs. For some reason, there was no... No room for him to have any food. When we break 
fellowship with our, our Heavenly Father, that's exactly what we do. When we sin, we starve ourselves spiritually. When we don't take God's Word into our hearts and in our minds on a regular basis, we starve ourselves spiritually. We also see Him in complete solitude. Again, it's interesting how many uh, likely quote-unquote friends that he had when he still had excuse me, his father's inheritance. And yet, while the money ran out, uh, no one would even so much as give him a bite to eat. Sin, breaking fellowship with God, uh, that can promise us a lot of things. It always promises us to, to give us more acceptance, more social status, more quote-unquote friends. And yet, in the end, it's always going to leave us more spiritually lonely than before. We see this example in uh, people who become famous in a, maybe a shallow way, and they're some of the most lonely people sometimes that, that you can ever meet. And so if we seek our acceptance and our friendship from the world in place of our Heavenly Father, we will also be spiritually alone. Verse 17 illustrates the fact that he had a haunting memory of how great that he had it in his previous life. You see, if we leave this life apart from God, Luke 16 and 17 with the rich man and Lazarus illustrates that we may be haunted by the memories of the past life. And again, the prodigal son looked back and he remembered just how great that he had it with his father. And so to summarize this point in this parable, when we break our fellowship with God, we look a lot like this. Sitting in a pig pen, covered in mud, covered in pig manure, and apart from God. This picture, no doubt, would be a terrible and unsustainable state for us to try to reside in. And yet, when we choose to remain in sin, this is exactly what we look like to God. The great news of the situation is that the prodigal son made the decision to seek out his father's forgiveness. In the passage, the prodigal son hoped that he could merely be one of his father's hired servants. What the passage doesn't mention is that any time a Hebrew lost their money wastefully, they had to go through this ceremony, and Kazaza. Basically, what this literally meant in Hebrew was cutting off. Any Jew who loses his money among foreigners and then tries to return it was ceremonially banished. They took a clay pot full of burnt beans. It's weird, but that's what they did. And they broke it at the feet of the offender as a visual symbol that the community banished them forever. But instead of that happening... When the father sees the prodigal son coming from a distance, what does he do? He runs toward him. Also not mentioned in the passage that in the Hebrew culture, it was utmost importance for an adult male to save face. And one of the quickest ways to lose face in this society was to run in public, thereby exposing your bare legs under your cloak. And yet, we see a father's love so deep and concern for his son so rich that he was willing to sacrifice his image, his saved face, and run toward his son. He wanted to save his son from having to go through that terrible ceremony, and he could not wait to have a relationship again with the son and have him back in his family. Whenever, and we sometimes tend to forget that God's, we, we tend to forget God's ultimate love for us as his children. Just like for those of you who have Children, and they make a mistake, and you just want so desperately for them to get it right and to do better next time, and you want them to come back. God desperately wants us to restore our relationship with him as well. And even when we think that we're so nasty that we couldn't possibly be forgiven, we have to remember First John 1, 9 in our starting passage, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let's turn over to the New Testament and let's look at an individual who thought that he was in fellowship with God, but he actually wasn't. If you'll turn over with me to actually Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul's speaking here. Paul says in Philippians 3 and verse 5 and 6, He was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. You see, here we have <coughs> Paul basically naming a few attributes that he had. Um, he said that, He was a Hebrew among Hebrews. He was full of zeal. He was very zealous toward God. He was blameless in keeping the law of Moses. And yet, as we're about to read, if you'll turn over now to Acts chapter 9, Paul had no fellowship with God in that state. Acts chapter 9, we know that here Paul was previously known as Saul before his conversion. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 says, Then Saul... Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It's hard to imagine a greater state of disfellowship with God than an individual who was guilty of murder, guilty of imprisonment, of people who claimed to follow God's Son, people who were Christians. And still yet, as we just established over in Philippians, Saul thought that he had fellowship with God because of his zeal toward God. This sounds an awful lot like many of the world today who think that they have a relationship with God based on their zeal toward God or because of their sincerity or because they sacrifice their time before God or because of some good works that they do. You know, some say just, you know, be a good person and believe in God and that's what counts. 1 John 4, 8, 9 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Certainly, we have to love God, and it's commanded for us to do so. But that's complemented in a passage just prior in 1 John 2, 5, that says, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. We have to not only love God, but we have to keep the commandments of God. And Saul thought that he was serving God because of his ill, but he was not keeping the commandments of God by living in Christ. There seem to be, even today, those who profess to know God and even say that they love his son, but unfortunately, they're not keeping his commandments. We can even be guilty of this as Christians if we choose to to break our fellowship for any reason and choose sin over the commandments of God. I'm going to suggest, however, that one of the greatest commandments not followed by those in the world today is that of exactly how we initially achieve fellowship with God. And as I said, that's kind of what I wanted to end with as our last point is, what exactly did Saul do to remedy the fact that he had no fellowship with God? Again, in Acts 9, we see that he journeyed to Damascus to seek out Christians to persecute and If you read down through the passage, a light from heaven shined down on him, and Jesus spoke directly to him. We then see that in verse 8, Saul was blinded from that experience. Just like Jonah, he was placed in a state of darkness 
because of his sin. After going to the city, Ananias then in verse 17 laid his hands on him, and Saul then received his sight. And then in verse 18, Saul was baptized. Now I want us to carefully examine what it was that exactly among these events placed Saul in fellowship with God. Perhaps a better place to do that is actually in Acts 22. So if you'll turn over a few pages now to Acts chapter 22. Here we see Paul giving account of his conversion before a mob in Jerusalem. And I think that we'll find quickly exactly what at what point Paul achieved, or Saul at this point achieved his fellowship with God. In verse 6 of Acts 22, you can read that he saw a great light from heaven. In verse 7, we see Jesus spoke directly to Saul. We know that Saul was also blinded by the Lord, as we just previously read. And then in verse 13, we see where Ananias laid his hands on Saul, allowing him to receive his sight. Now, these are all occurrences that many in the religious world today would say that counts as placing someone in fellowship with God. I mean, after all, he saw a light. He heard directly from Jesus. Ananias laid his hands on him, and a miracle happened. These are things that that people in the world would say, yeah, he's good to go. But the story doesn't end there. We keep reading then in verse 16, and here's where I think we'll find our answer. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That was supposed to be a picture of Saul on the road to Damascus. But what we see in verse 16, if any of the prior events that Saul had went through would have granted him forgiveness of sin and placed him into Christ, Ananias surely would not have said that you still need to be baptized to wash away your sins. In fact, he did not say, arise and be baptized as an outward showing of an inward change that has already taken place. No, rather he said, be baptized and wash away your sins. We also see here a phrase that many in the world will try to say saves an individual. Just call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved, as many say. We see here exactly what calling on the name of the Lord meant. Saul, never having obeyed Christ, had his sins washed away through baptism, thereby calling on the name of the Lord and placing him in fellowship with God. I'd like for everyone, and stay with me for just a few more minutes. It's going to sound like I'm about to finish. I've got another point or two to make. But I'd like for everyone to take a moment to ask yourself, am I in fellowship with God right now? Am I like Jonah, maybe who previously had a relationship with God, but perhaps because of pride or selfish ambition or just sin in general, am I now covered in seaweed and fish guts and I'm away from God and apart from God? Are you like Saul? Maybe you thought that you had a relationship with God, but you realize you haven't taken the right steps to gain that fellowship yet. Or maybe you know that you haven't taken the right steps yet, and you're still covered again in seaweed and pig mud, pig manure. But just like the father couldn't wait to see his son come back, God cannot wait to have you come in the first place. To further establish my point, 2 Thessalonians, I'm just going to read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 says that one day... The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of his power. Have you obeyed the gospel? God is going to take vengeance, as as said in 2 Thessalonians, on those who have not. What is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 tells us that the gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So how do we, and I'm concluding here, how do we obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, Romans 6, 3 says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. This morning, if you have not been baptized into Christ, unfortunately, you still remain in spiritual darkness. If you've found yourself in a situation where you're away from God, you're, you're in a state of spiritual darkness. God is longing for you to be in fellowship with him this morning, and we cannot wait to rejoice with you. If we can help you in any way, please come forward as we stand and sing.